The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. People who weren't here last week, hopefully you weren't shocked by the meditation tonight. <laughs> in uh, the Buddhist tradition, some of these meditations are called the Subha, or the um, unwholesome meditations, or meditation on the unwholesome aspects of the body. But unwholesome isn't really the right translation. It's more like, as I mentioned last week, we're correcting imbalances. Like we tend sometimes to be adoring of the body, some of us at least, and uh, we, we're out of balance. We don't we're not kind of taking in the whole picture. The bodies maybe can be viewed in many different, from many different perspectives. And so these traditional practices from the Buddhist tradition, just a way of bringing our view or our relationship to the body in balance. So it's not skewed because of our cultural conditioning. Like, for example, our cultural conditioning to be oblivious to death or to be oblivious to the mechanism of the body and to see it as sort of a you know, um, holding container for the mind, for me, my personality, or something like that. I'll save some time at the end of the evening. It would be nice to hear from people how that meditation or those meditations were for you or if you have questions about them. So just to review, last week I shared this particular discourse, one of the more famous, well-known discourses from the Buddha, mindfulness of the body. And in this discourse, um, Ajahn Tanisaro translates uh, the title as Mindfulness Immersed in the Body. And the uh, Buddha, after practicing all day, came to where some monks were having a discussion about practice. And he asked them what they were talking about. And they said, well, we're talking about mindfulness of the body. And the Buddha then offered him, offered them some teachings about that, about mindfulness of the body. He gave them six meditations on the body. Mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the four postures, mindfulness of daily activities, stretching, moving, drinking, sitting, urinating, eating, swallowing. So all the different daily activities. And then mindfulness of the 32 body parts similar to the one we did today in the guided meditation. Mindfulness of the four elements. So it's um, a more immediate and direct perception of the physicality of the body. So instead of like when we feel the buttocks on the chair or cushion, instead of having the experience, oh, my butt is on the chair or my butt is on the cushion, it's more the direct knowing of hardness or roughness or coolness or heat. So that's that's what's meant by the four elements meditation. We talked about that last week. And then the sixth one is this mindfulness of the corpse meditation, sort of imagining, using your imagination to see the body in its natural progression from life to death to the breaking apart of the body. And just to recognize how it transforms our relationship to the body having done that reflection. 
usually you do it over and over again for a period of time so that the mind becomes very fluid with all six of these meditations. And again, as I mentioned last week, the important thing with meditation in general, and specifically these six meditations, they're really about balancing the mind. So as a human being, there's only one problem. Our mind is out of balance. When our mind is out of balance, we misperceive how it is. When we misperceive things as they are, misperceive life as it is, then we act based on our misperception. And our actions then uh, lead to consequences. We call that stress and suffering and confusion and feeling burdened by life. But life is burdensome because we're acting in particular ways. And we're acting in particular ways because we're misperceiving how it is. And the problem of misperception arises because the heart or mind is out of balance. So really think about these meditations in terms of medicine that will balance perception, balance the way the mind sees or the way the mind knows. So the experience of the body is such a central part of our life experience, right? And it makes sense if we want to uh, be in alignment and live out of that alignment, then we have to have uh, a direct, authentic experience, relationship to the body. And yet, just think about our cultural conditioning about the body. I mean, I, I mentioned last week, for those who weren't here, but just to say it again briefly, we spend so much energy thinking about decorating the body and uh, you know how we present the body. So that's part of our cultural conditioning, this adoration of the body. And then the other half of our cultural conditioning is this uh, repulsion or hatred of the body. You know, and generally most of us swing back and forth, you know, where we're sort of way out here thinking the body is more than it is, and then way out here thinking the body is somehow terrible and less than what it is. And we miss that balanced relationship with the body. So with the practices, the first three practices, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the four postures, standing, sitting, walking, lying down, and then the third, mindfulness of daily activities, by learning how to really show up uh, with uh, wholeheartedness, to really care enough about the present moment experience of breathing in, or the present moment experience of sitting, or the present moment experience of reaching, or drinking, or pooping, or whatever it might be. If we care enough, honor enough the present moment, and we really show up, it overcomes an unconscious aversion and denial of how it is. We're so caught up in what we want life to be, what we want the moment to be, that we don't realize it, but there's a, a subtle but pervasive uh, disrespect and denial and pushing away of the actual lived experience in the moment. We just don't think it's worth attention. You know, when's the last time 
you were fully present for drinking water or countless other daily activities, let alone a breath and meditation when that's exactly what the activity is about, you know. But how many breaths, how many moments were we present with the body sitting in our meditation or the breath coming in or going out? So we have to acknowledge we have this huge pattern of not being present. And it's built upon aversion and desire and denial and distraction. And so mindfulness of breathing as a training, mindfulness of the four postures, mindfulness of daily activities, you know, it's, this is sort of in military terms, but it's a direct assault against that big habit of assuming the present moment experience of the body is irrelevant. There's nothing to be learned, nothing to be gained by being fully present in the experience of the body. And then the other practices, the 32 body parts and the uh, four elements breaking the experience of the body into the physicality, the actual uh, visceral experience as opposed to our conceptual interpretation, like my butt is on the chair. That as an experience, the thought, my butt's on the chair, my butt, my butt is pressing against the cushion, that's one thing. But the actual experience of pressure, the hardness or whatever, that actual physicality, that's completely different than the thought. I'm sitting on a chair and it's hard. But the actual moment-to-moment -moment knowing of hardness is different than the thought, even though the two obviously are related but it's different. And the example that's often given is like reading a really nice, you read the, you know, open the New York Times and read a review of a dish somebody ate at a restaurant. And that person could be a very skilled writer. And it could be very interesting activity to read that review of that particular dish. But it's nothing, it's a completely different experience than actually eating that dish. And so this is that four elements meditation. We're going beyond our conceptual overlay into a direct experiencing of the physicality. And then the, the sixth one, as I mentioned, is the corpse meditation. So those last three meditations really help to tease out a kind of enchantment we have with the body. So because our body tends to be seen and imagined in terms of being wrapped up in the skin with a particular form and shape. And even that, we tend not to see the naked body. You know, it always surprises us when we see a completely naked body in good light. You know, it's never, we never see that. So even when we imagine the body, usually we imagine it clothed and decorated. And so, but that's not the body, of course, but that's what we think. You know, we just, so these three meditations are really helping us go beyond the pretty up view we have of the body and trying to, you know, by using our, because two of those meditations involve thinking, right? The 32 body part meditation and the corpse meditation, that's, uh, we're using thought and imagination. But what we're doing is we're replacing the usual thoughts and imagination 
with a different way of thinking and imagining the body. And what that does is it uproots the identification with that one way of thinking about and imagining the body. If we're only thinking and imagining about the body in one particular way, then it takes on a life of its own. It becomes a kind of reality in the mind. Oh, this is who I am, whatever that image is, you know. And we look in the mirror and we realize, oh, that doesn't fit. <laughs> Maybe I'm this, you know, and that's what I meant about swinging back and forth, you know. We can have kind of an image of the body that we like, and then sometimes it gets interrupted, and then we have an image of the body that we don't like. But in any case, we have that tendency toward a static image of the body. And so we can interrupt that. We can break down that habit by doing these kind of reflections. And then the mind becomes more fluid in terms of how it understands how it relates to the body. It's now, it becomes more of a mystery than, oh, this is who I am as a body. This is what the body is. Because, you know, are we that pile, that bunch of piles on the table? Or are we this, this? Or are we, you know, that corpse? Or are we that little baby? You know, or that thing that was in the womb back then? And uh, we realize that we don't really... We can't really grasp the body as a concept. That, that That's just a convenient mechanism we have in order to have conversations with each other. So I can say, well, my body you know, has a rash, or my body is really weak, or my body's really strong. So we have, you know, we have this term, my body. But the actual body as an experience is different than that. And when we understand the body in a more direct way, it means we understand both its experience as having life, but part of that experience of feeling the life energy in the body and being able, the body being able to respond as it can when it's alive, is also the understanding that this experience of life in the body is different than when it ends. You know, like getting that that's not a, you see, it changes the experience when we know that it's fragile and impermanent. It's not the same. Same with our car. When we're driving our car and when we have that lived, direct experience that this car is going to work until it doesn't. But mostly when we drive a car, we don't expect it to not work. And when it doesn't work, then we're surprised. Just like when we get sick or we find out, you know, we have an illness or a disease or cancer, we're surprised. Uh, one person I, I practiced with, Michelle McDonald-Smith at uh, the Insight Meditation Society, she was a longtime teacher for the three-month course, and uh, she talks, talked once about seeing her 94-year-old aunt, something like that. She was in her 90s, and uh, she'd gotten sick with some, I think, with an illness that eventually was the cause of her death. And uh, Michelle went to see her aunt in the hospital, and the aunt looks at her and says, why me? And, uh, I mean, it is a little funny from, from a certain perspective. You know, it's tragic on the one hand, but it's a little funny that somebody 94 years old would be surprised by getting sick or by illness or something like that. 
And the thing is, it's true for all of us, even if we're relatively young, because things happen to people who are relatively young too. Just the probability is lower. So um, part of the, you know, that corpse meditation is just correcting what's out of balance, the sense of immortality that we have. I mean, it's not like if we asked anybody in the room, they'd say, I'm immortal. You know, I know that. But how often are we awake to mortality as we live our day, an ordinary day? Maybe a couple times, if we're lucky, a couple times during the day, it sinks in. And if, you know, if you're sort of into the traditional Buddhist practices, more often, because many different ways, many different times, the Buddha suggested to maintain that understanding of impermanence in all regards, in regards to the body, but in regards to all experiences, all things are impermanent. So I want to go back to the sutta before I open it up for discussion. So I ended last week by just going through the six meditations. And then the Buddha talks about how the these six meditations on the body are powerfully protecting. And I want to talk about that, and he talks about that in the discourse. So the first question we should ask ourselves, well, what, what would mindfulness of the body in these different ways, what would it be protecting us from? Like, for example, you know, breaking the body down into 32 parts or imagining the body decomposing. How is that protecting? Well, one of the things it protects us of, from is being surprised by mortality. You know, by consciously reflecting on the mortality of the body we will not be surprised by mortality because we're aware of it. Or uh, by cultivating uh, mindfulness of the breath or mindfulness of the four postures or mindfulness of daily activities, we're also protected because the attention has something to do. You know, we can, in a sense, pour rest awareness in the moment-to-moment experience of the body. And the mind, the thinking mind, is protected because it's not going to wander here and remember this and then proliferate. And, you know, what's that that line from Christian faith of uh, an idle mind is the devil's playground, is that how it goes, right? And there's some truth to that. Like, you know how it is when we've got time on our hand and the mind is undisciplined, you know, who knows what we'll do with our mind, where we'll go to entertain it, to, you know, the, what the mind won't create to entertain itself. Really terrible things, you know, we'll think about terrible things just because we're afraid of boredom. You know, we're afraid of simplicity. I don't have anything to do. You know, we'll just start. And it may start being relatively innocent. Like, uh, you know, I wonder what's going on next door. You know, and then who knows where that will lead. Or I wonder what's in this catalog. Or think about how, you know, whatever you imagine is despicable in the world, 
It all began with one thought, maybe years prior, right? A relatively innocent thought, you know? Maybe we could make Europe tidier, <laughs> you know? And then, <laughs> then you become a dictator or something years later. You know, a more orderly world where things are done my way, the right way, you know, and on and on. And we, you know, I mean, it sounds silly to talk about it in terms of world domination, but we do this all the time with our partners and our friends, you know. If I could just tweak her or tweak him a little bit, he or she would be so much better, you know. So by learning to pour ourselves in, to give our heart completely over to physicality or to moving or to breathing, it's a real protection. And the Buddha talks about the unification of mind. At the end of each of these, um, these uh, instructions, he talks about how it leads to this inner unification of mind. The mind gathers, settles inwardly, grows unified and centers. This is how a practitioner develops mindfulness immersed in the body. On to the four jhanas, what are called the four absorptions or the four ways the mind creates deep stability where it, it just can uh, rest in peace. It has retreated from what agitates the mind, from what pulls the mind into good and bad this and that. It's retreated from that. And it's refreshed. It actually, it's a deep healing when the mind is concentrated in that way. And then from there, all kinds of uh, different skills arise. But the Buddha talked about, after talking about how mindfulness of the body in these six ways lead to deep states of absorption, he talks about this protection in a very interesting way. He says, Practitioners, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing, just as whoever pervades the great ocean with her awareness encompasses whatever rivulets flow down into the ocean. In the same way, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. In whomever mindfulness immersed in the body is not developed, not pursued, Mara gains entry. Mara gains a foothold. Mara is the personification of all of our unskillful habits, all of our tendencies to take things personally and to be reactive, reactive with fear, aversion, greed, distraction, and denial. These different ways these, that reactivity happen. That's what Mara means. So it's the bad guy, the boogeyman, all these habits. So the Buddha says, so how do we protect ourselves from all of that negative habit energy? And the Buddha says, well, suppose a person were to throw a heavy stone ball into a pile of wet clay. What do you think, practitioners? Would the heavy stone ball gain entry into the pile of wet clay? Yeah, right? You throw a heavy stone into wet clay, it's going to make an imprint. And the Buddha goes on to say, just so. You know, if you're not, if you don't have your attention, your mindfulness grounded in the present moment reality of the body, then 
Mara can do what it wants to you. You know, your ha- our habit energies have a playground, and they'll play. Now, it's not just mindfulness of the body. He's using the body now as an object for mindfulness. We can have mindfulness. We can be uh, in the experience of the knowing with any particular experience. He's just talking about the body. And he has other images. He talks about how if you had a bunch of really dry wood, would it be easy for somebody to bring the upper stick, you know, and rub it and start a fire? And, of course, the, the monks and nuns and lay people say, yes, of course. And the Buddha says, just so, you know. Mara gains an entry. If you're not mindful, if you're not mindful of the body, it's easy for a fire to get started. And the other image he uses is, you know, if you have a big empty vessel and somebody comes around with a pitcher of water, will they be able to pour it in there? Yeah. Yeah, in the same way Mara can sort of fill up an empty vessel. And this is, you know, this is something actually we feel. You know, in the mindfulness of the breathing, the first part of the mindfulness of breathing instructions that I gave tonight, aware of the breath coming in and out, aware of the particular texture of the breath. Is it long or short? Aware or sensitive of the whole body as we're breathing in and out. And then the fourth instruction is calming the body as we breathe in and out. So just in those four instructions, just following that, just awareness of the breath coming and going, enough continuity, enough clarity to know each in-breath, out-breath in its distinct, specific quality. So it's not like well, just another out-breath. But we're knowing this out-breath. We know it directly as being a little longer than the other ones, or a little shorter, a little rougher, a little smoother. But we're knowing it directly. And then with that full presence, that's a real commitment to know the out-breath or the in-breath as it actually is. It means we have to show up, which means we have to let go of the world in order to really show up for that in-breath. It's a commitment. And already we'll, we'll have this sense of protection, especially as we get to feeling the whole body with the in-breath and out-breath. And f- that calmness is that experience, that beginning of that experience of protection that comes when the mind, the heart, lets go of the world, the world of our ideas about things, and is becoming grounded or resting in the timeless present, the present moment, there is that direct experience of protection. It's hard to describe. Some people call it uh, the sense of wholeness. But it is, there there is almost like a visceral feeling of, of protection. And it's like an unmistakable feeling that you'll feel sometimes when you've let go of what's agitating in the mind. Basically, worrying about ourselves, worrying about others, worrying about what we want, worrying about what we're afraid of, wondering about this and that. All of that, even things that seem in daily life wouldn't stand out as being agitating. But from this point of view, just messing around in the world of this and that is agitating. And it's really healing to step away from it. Now, this isn't the end of the path that the Buddha taught, just about retreating from the world. It's just a very skillful 
means, a, a really important skill to develop to be able to retreat from the world because it supports a deepening of insight. So uh, later, the Buddha, in the same discourse, the Buddha talks about the 10 benefits that arise from doing this practice. And you'll see as you go through these 10 benefits, they start out as being really pragmatic and functional to the cessation, the, the ending of stress in the mind. So I'll just finish here and then open it up for discussion. Practitioners, for one whom mindfulness immersed in the body is cultivated and developed, pursued, handed the reins and taken as a basis, given a grounding, steadied, consolidated, well undertaken. Ten benefits can be expected. Which ten? One conquers displeasure and delight, and displeasure does not conquer her. She remains victorious over any displeasure that has arisen. So when the mind is fully present in the moment, in the knowing, then it's, it's free from liking and disliking. Because if liking or disliking were to arise, that would be uh, a moment of knowing, right? We'd know the liking or we'd know the disliking. There wouldn't be an immediate identification. We wouldn't become the person who wants this or the person who wants to get rid of this. Mindfulness protects us from that mechanism of liking and disliking. It may happen, but we won't identify with it. We won't take the liking or disliking personally. That's the first benefit. Second benefit, one conquers fear and dread, and fear and dread do not conquer him or her. He remains victorious over any fear and dread that have arisen. Can we be afraid without mental proliferation? That's a good question for reflection, not to sort of figure out, but to actually experiment. Like, Notice how when you're caught in fear, whether it's fear of losing your job or fear of a breakup of an important relationship or fear of global warming or fear of death or illness, notice that, any, that, that the torment of fear depends on mental proliferation. What is fear without mental proliferation, without the thinking, the mind regurgitating and keeping, keeping on revisiting the different images and the different thoughts associated with that emotional pain of fear. What happens when there isn't that proliferation? So when the mind is resting in awareness and mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the mind. In a sense, there's no room for proliferation. The more the mind is fully in the mode of awareness, the more the mind has fully given up its identification with the thoughts that come and go. And when thoughts aren't being identified with, they get weaker and weaker. What propels the thinking process the conceptualizing process is the identification, the attachment to the thoughts, to the images. 
And but when the mind is equanimous, mindful, in a sense, it's not fueling or feeding the process of thinking. And so fear and dread falls away. That was the second. The third is, one is resistant to cold, heat, hunger, thirst, the touch of gadflies and mosquitoes, wind and sun, and creeping things. To abusive, hurtful language, one is the sort that can endure bodily feelings that, when they arise, are painful, sharp, stabbing, fierce, distasteful, disagreeable, deadly. Now, many of us have seen people in a lot of pain when there's not much that can be done. Now, we have a lot of nifty medical things these days that are great. And, uh, but even with all the drugs and other medical techniques we have of modifying or reducing pain, there are times when pain is just going to be inevitable. And it would be really nice to be able to be with the pain in a way where we don't get swept away with our reactive fear and hate for the pain. Because, of course, that is its own torment, to be caught in, to be experiencing a lot of pain and to be believing, identified with the thought, I can't take this anymore. This is not okay. You know, that kind of desperate panic when we're experiencing something we don't like and we want to stop, but we can't stop it. That's what we call hell. That is as good a definition of hell as any, is when we're in a difficult situation and we refuse to accept it, refuse to relax with it. We believe that fighting it, struggling with it, is sane or appropriate. So this is another benefit of mindfulness of the body. And then the Buddha, the next uh, seven, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. The next six have to do with developing deep states of concentration because of this talent we have to be with the body. And then the different kinds of powers that for some people can develop because of states of concentration. So he talks about different psychic powers here, which we won't talk about. We'll go to the tenth one, where the Buddha talks about through the ending of the mental effluence, one remains in the effluent free awareness release and discernment release, having known and made them manifest for oneself right here, right, right in the here and now. So through the ending of the me mental effluence. So through the training and mindfulness of the body, we learn, basically we learn how to go to zero again. Now, our mind, our heart, it's forgotten zero. We only know reaction and reaction to reaction and reactions to reactions to reactions. And that's our whole life. We call it samsara, the cycles of stress and suffering because we're in this aversion attachment syndrome where we're just reacting out of fear and aversion and greed to everything we're experiencing. And the neutral stuff we just don't pay attention to. So we notice what we like and we notice what we don't like and we react accordingly. 
And in that life of reactivity, we completely forget about zero. The experience of being in the middle of life, living life, but not reacting to life that's being lived. And that's why, from a, this relative point of view, this diluted point of view, that's why we have this path of awakening, because we've forgotten something that we could say is the ordinary state or the natural state. And instead, we take as the natural state this reactive, these reactive patterns that so fill our mind and life that it's all we know. And so we just assume it's normal. So this effluent, uh, the ending of the mental effluence, sometimes translated as the mental intoxicants, you know, these are the, the patterns of reactivity that the mind knows out of habit that never end. Because any reactive pattern becomes the cause for the next reactive pattern. So there's no ending to this, except by being mindful of the body, mindful of the present moment, mindful of the mind, and training and getting really good at that full presence. One of the things we learn unmistakably is that these patterns of reactivity are insane and stressful. And seeing this over and over again, you know, I'm sure you've discovered mindfulness practice isn't always bliss or even maybe often bliss. It's often difficult to be in the experience of the body, in the experience of mind, because as we settle, we notice the compulsion to react to everything over and over and over again. So that's important training, because the more we see that compulsion and sometimes act it out, sometimes don't act it out, we learn something, how acting out the compulsion to react agitates the heart. And when we don't act it out, the heart calms down. And slowly, little insights over and over again, a deepening realization of how to be zero emerges, how to be in the middle of the movement of life, our life is movement, how to be right in the middle of it, but not reacting with fear and aversion and greed and delusion. And the Buddha says here, one remains in the effluent free awareness release, wisdom release, right? So the release of wisdom, the release that arises from not being confused by life. In the middle of life, fully there, responding, moving with life, but not confused by it, not confused by pain, not confused by beauty. So we're not trying to get a charge out of life. So we're letting our personality and all things move freely. So this is the final benefit that arises. I mentioned last week, you can get a hold of this discourse um, translated by a well-known American monk, Ajahn Tanisro, or Tanisro Bhikkhu, is often how he signs, or the, his, the way his name is listed under these. And if you just Google, I think if you just put in MN119, you'll get this 
mindfulness immersed in the body discourse of the Buddha. It's at the access to insight.org website. But if you have trouble finding it, you can just let me know. But we have 15 minutes now. It would be nice to hear from people how that meditation, those meditations were tonight, or any questions you have about the talk. Anything come to mind that you'd like to share or questions? Yeah, Tom. Um, I was a wedding for his family and some of them I might work sort of thing. Meditation, you know, kind of like, what's that like for you? And there, there's that sense, you know, before I got doing this, um, uh, you know, it's like, wow, what is that? You know, it's kind of, kind of, you know, spiritual and enlightenment and kind of got this other worldly quality to it. It's kind of mystical, right? And, mm-hmm. and I just, and people ask, Who would want to see things as they are? Telling, isn't it? You know that that uh, like uh, one of the uh, sections in Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, another American um, monk, and uh, one of the great translators of these discourses. He has a book about the uh, Eightfold Path uh, that the Buddha described, and he talks about like, are we in, are we going to be devoted to the truth or to delusion? You know, I mean, this is the one life we have. And are we going to spend our life kind of covering things up and just getting by? 
Or are we going to be interested in how it actually is, this life that's being lived here? And you know, when we ask that question, we're going to, I think most of us are going to say, I want this life to be in alignment with the truth. You know, I want to have more wisdom about how it is, this life, not theoretically, not philosophically, but how it is than I did when I was born. You know, Because who would consciously, <coughs> I mean, we do, I think, at times, but we have to be in a lot of pain to consciously cultivate delusion, you know, to want delusion. Because it doesn't help in the end. That's the thing. It's a, it's a strategy that doesn't actually work, although it may give some temporary, temporary release from pain by sticking our head in the sand. Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. That was great to hear. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Shannon. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I was really, um, I think the, the meditation on not just the idea of death, but sort of like, you know, like that story that you were telling about your friend that passed and the body there, like that stayed with me actually, you know, and I was like thinking about that all week, like what was that like, you know, and what will it be like, you know, when that happens, because it's going to happen Yeah. somebody close to me and then actually be a little careful about it, like what I said at the beginning about the kind of medicine that would be useful. But a lot of times, some of the causes for depressive states of mind is we're disconnected from life because we're afraid of it. And so by starting to include life as it actually is, it can actually bring us more right into the where life energy is. We can feel more alive. So 
it can be a very powerful strategy. And it doesn't have to be big, like where we take two hours to do the reflection. But like in 15 seconds, we can just scan across the room. And you know, as we're looking at all the different bodies in this room, and just know that every single body in this room will die and fall apart. Absolutely every one. You know, and you know, we can do the math. In 10 years, a couple. In 20 years, more than a couple. You know, in 30 years, a lot of us. And 40, 50 years, almost all of us. And you know, and on and on like that. Or as Tikhon Han says, you know, when you're having an argument. Just imagine the body in 300 years. That body, yeah, you have an argument. You know, it kind of puts a hole. You know, releases the steam. Thanks so much, Shannon, for sharing that. That was great. Yeah, Mary. Yeah. Um, I think maybe as I've gotten older, it's not so hard for my father who died and, and being present for that, or your meditation about putting the body parts on the table in front of you. I can um, feel that. But what confuses me is that in doing those things, there is an observer who's doing those things. And that observer is me. And I don't know how that fits in with the concept of no self. There is the observer seeing or knowing, you know, that those images or whatever the mind is creating in terms of, you know, the piles of the body parts. There is an observing of that, right? And then there's also that activity, that thought, that observer is me. But that thought this observing is me or that observer is me, that's just a thought. So just notice that. I'm not saying that there isn't an observing going on. And that's part of what the practice uh, illuminates, is that there is this knowing going on. And the more we get interested in the knowing, the more we realize what it's not. And like uh, Joseph Goldstein, I think, once said, and one of my teachers once said, it's not so much what you find, it's what you don't find that's uh, sort of transforming. So what we, it's not what we find about that observer, it's what we don't find there that's transforming. So continue to do the different mindfulness practices, and that sense of observer or knowing will become more and more obvious. And so by default, we're going to be interested in it. The mind's going to be interested in it. It's going to look at it, and it will keep teasing away what that knowing isn't. You know, no, that's a thought. You know, that's a projection on it. We keep teasing that away, and we get more to the nature of the mind, you could say, or the nature of knowing itself. And you don't need to know what it is. Just do the work. Because whatever we think it is, it's not that. You know, whatever, I, like I said, well, that's your essential truth or essential self or, you know, that's Buddha nature, you know, then we just created something that we're going to realize is, is not it. <laughs> so that's the freedom. The freedom comes in realizing that uh, empty, 
place of knowing. That's as, as good as I can say right now. And we awaken to that because the habit of the mind is to keep defining it as self because it's a big habit, making it me. But every time we do that, we'll see, oh, that was just a thought. That was just that mental activity of projecting a sense of me on that observing, on that knowing, on that awareness. But we don't need to be confused by that projection, because that's just like we can catch all kinds of thoughts. We can learn to catch that one, too. Thanks, Mary, for bringing that up. Maybe time for one more comment. Yeah, Rebecca. Yeah, it's healing on all levels. Like in those ten benefits, the first three, I think, really were on that level of the direct healing that comes from that full presence with the body, let alone the, the sort of ultimate freedom that it leads to. Thanks so much, Rebecca. And let's leave it here. Just take a few seconds to let go of the words together. Maybe take a breath or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.